Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom Wedderall. I'm one of the pastors here at Kennet Valley. We uh, left off in chapter four of Hosea uh, as he begins kind of spelling out the judgment awaiting uh, the two kingdoms, the, the north and the south of God's people because of their unfaithfulness to God. And uh, now as chapter five begins, Hosea's focus starts on the priests, but very quickly zooms out to include the whole nation, north and south who are all culpable. But yet, uh, as we see throughout the whole letter, all of this is written so that they would return. Hence the the, uh, name of our series, Return. So let me invite you to have uh, Hosea chapter 5, verses 1 to 15 in front of you, uh, as Jill read to us earlier. So to begin, I've got a fairly odd question uh, for you this morning, which is, um, what's it like under the floorboards where you live. Bit of an odd one. Uh, For for most of us, uh, we haven't got a clue what's going on under the floorboards, under where we live. Um, And uh, maybe it's been a very long time since you saw what was underneath there. And yet, it's strange because the condition of the the foundations and the joists underneath our floors uh, are are pretty essential for the well-being of the whole house, I think it's fair to say. Um, Some friends of ours, of of mine and Caitlin's, um, bought a house not that long ago, and uh, they knew when buying the house that it was going to be a project, a fixer-upper. There was going to be work involved. Uh, But one afternoon, uh, they set to work taking up the floorboards, ready to lay down the new ones. And uh, it was going to be a big job, and so they invited some friends around to, to help them out. And uh, they went ahead and they lifted up, started lifting up all the floorboards one by one, revealing the joists underneath. But as one of their friends was was, uh, lifting up one of the floorboards, a great chunk of one of the joists came with it. Not what you want to see. And so inevitably they went around testing all of the joists. And uh, as they did, clumps and clumps of wood pulled away. One of the friends... Uh, kind of went to test it and just it came away just crumbled in their hands even that bit between kind of the brickwork it was kind of that was supporting the brickwork it was all coming out it was absolutely rotten and I don't know if you've ever been in that position or a similar one it's not a good one and uh, maybe you know that sinking feeling that comes with knowing that it's serious and that it's gonna need attention Uh, I'm not going to ask you to kind of raise your hands, but you know, yeah, that sinking feeling that something is seriously wrong. Well, uh, the house of Israel, at the time that the prophet Hosea is speaking to them, uh, they have a very serious spiritual rot problem. They've got a lot of other problems too, uh, which uh, are fairly obvious, things like uh, internal corruption within the nation. Uh, They've got enemies knocking on their door. But at the center of Israel's problems is the rot issue. And Hosea is speaking out against them because they've been ignoring the problem for far too long. They've not faced up to the problem and it's gone and dealt with. And all of these other issues, all of these symptoms and signs are showing that something is very wrong underneath the surface. And so now... Hosea is telling them that God is going to be the one to bring the house down around them. 
but it is a situation that is entirely of their own making. It's right that, it's right that they face up to the consequences. Because if there's going to be any future for God's people at all, God needs to clean house. Because right now, as things stand in Israel, they cannot know God. And so, Hosea, he starts, as we see, by addressing Israel's leaders in verse 1, uh, which, if you remember in the last chapter, he spared no words, laying out the failings of the priesthood. These are the people who are meant to be responsible for spotting the, the early signs of spiritual issues so that God's people would be protected from harm. Our friends who uh, bought that house with the, the bad joists, they did get a surveyor out. They had their checks done, but they missed everything. A really glaring, serious problem. And that's an issue when those who are meant to be a safeguard don't fulfill their role because there's the risk for potential ruin. And this is dreadful when it happens today in our culture, when it happens in churches. And we as church leaders need your prayers so that we don't get caught up in sin. And that's not just for our own spiritual well-being, but because it has the possibility, our sin has the possibility to cause real destruction into the lives of individuals and to the whole church. And we are not immune to sin. And so let me ask you, as we think about leaders, just to pray for us, for me, for Graham, for Charlie, for the elders, for the leadership, for all those who lead teams, pray for us. But the priests weren't just missing the important warning signs in their community. They were deliberately, we read here, setting traps for the people. Hosea begins, hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mitzpah, a net spread out on Tabor. Hosea says that they have been leading them up to the religious places and legitimizing outrageous and horrific sin. And so what's happened is that corruption has made its way to all levels of Israelite society. So he's addressed the priests in, in chapter 4 and there in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, but he zooms out, doesn't he? To include the royal house and to include all the inhabitants of the northern kingdom. But what we see is that the floorboards as it were, are firmly nailed down. As we're going to see as we look through this passage, they are going to go anywhere else rather than to deal with the issues at hand. And so Hosea speaks this word of judgment to them and seemingly identifies different traps that they have willingly walked themselves into as they have looked to all the wrong places to hold on to their lifestyles rather than seeking God, rather than coming to God for their need. So, the foundations are rotten. What are they going to do about it? What traps are they falling into? The first trap is this. Israel seemingly is in total denial. They say everything is fine. God has repeatedly warned them for, for ages through his words and through the prophets that there's an issue. And yet, if you uh, look at the Bible, if you've got it in front of you in verse 2, we read, the rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. He says, I will discipline all of them. They are in it with both feet, as they say. 
they are thoroughly committed to ignoring the problem. The floorboards are nailed down, and you could say that they've also kind of carpeted the whole thing and, and added rugs on top to avoid seeing any indication that there is anything wrong underneath. They say that ignorance is bliss. And so the Israelites have decided to carry on as normal, totally caught up in the sin that they have been repeatedly warned about. And they make the foolish mistake that because they have convinced themselves it's not an issue, maybe God won't see it either. But we read here, God knows. God sees beyond the surface. He says, I know all about Ephraim, Israel. Israel is not hidden from me. And we know, don't we, that you and I, we can do the same. We convince ourselves that everything is fine, or we tell others that everything is fine, or we cover our tracts, or if somebody kind of is seemingly sensing that something is off, we, we try and throw them off the scent, we distract them. And for a time, for seasons, that works, doesn't it? It, it distracts us, and maybe it distracts others. But God sees all. Israel, God knows the full extent of the corruption of your hearts. That's what Hosea wants them to see. He knows. But this statement that nothing is hidden from God isn't there to conjure up an image of kind of a, a big brother, kind of aware of, of uh, everything that we want to keep hidden so as to purely intimidate or control us. This whole letter is geared towards calling the Israelites to return. God already knows. And he wants them to acknowledge the reality of the state that they're in so that he can restore that which has been defiled. Now, to those who aren't repentant, it feels invasive. Why should God see what I want to keep hidden? But God sees it and he can't just do nothing about it. And so for Israel, the anticipation here is that their bliss is about to come crashing down around them. And this warning must resonate with us. If we know that we ourselves have gotten into something with, our, with both of our feet, are you fearful to see the full extent of the harm and damage that your sin may be causing to yourself, to your relationship with God, or to others? The worst thing that we can do for ourselves is to entrench ourselves further into this trap of denial with layers of reasons and excuses that try to cover up any signs of that lurking guilt underneath. So much better is it to tell God what he already knows and to face up to it with him. To return and to seek him. This is our first trap. It's just to say, everything's fine. The second trap is how we convince ourselves that we're fine because we're just doing what everybody else is doing. Or to put it a different way, it's normal. What we're doing is normal. Look with me in the, in the second half of verse 4. Hosea says, a spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord's. They have been drawn away from their unique relationship that they have with God because they've been taken in by wanting what everybody else has. They've, they've looked around at the other kingdoms 
uh, around them jealously. And this isn't the case just for the, for the northern kingdom. We also read that in verse 5, Judah has followed suit as well, the southern kingdom. And so they've looked around at these other nations who we read are in the grip of some supernaturally evil power, which is leading them to commit really awful acts in worship of the gods of the, of the Baals. But the Israelite people saw what the other nations were doing and for some reason thought they were missing out. And so now they dance to that tune. We read it's in their hearts. And so uh, at the beginning of verse 4, it says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. This is a really heavy word for them, isn't it? The sin of the other, nation, the, the sin of the other nations that they keep returning to is keeping them from returning to their God. And the instinct is to say, well, it's normal. That's what everybody else is doing. And it's easy, isn't it, for us as well to, to fall into that, to, to feel that way, to just want to go along with what's normal. I think there are two sides to, to this coin. Um, there's the side where we, we justify our denial because we're just doing the same as what others are doing. Um, I can make a confession here as an illustration of this, and funnily enough, it's to do with the foundations of a different house. Um, when uh, Caitlin and I were living in Southampton, uh, one day there was just this unnatural, well, not unnatural, there was just a huge amount of rain, and it filled up the road, and it was pouring down our driveway and running past the front door of our house and even running underneath the house. Not ideal, as you can imagine. And yet the first thing that came to my mind was to think, well, our neighbors, their houses are built the same way as our house. So if there's actually a problem here, they'll probably tell us about it. I'd rather stay in denial of the issues. Now, it might be the case that the house was built to sustain that. I don't really know. Um, but either way, I would rather kind of stay in denial of it than actually um, see what the issue is. And that could be normal, is it? Just to say it's normal to justify our denial of the issue. The other side of the coin of, of kind of saying it's normal is that we just want to do what everybody else is doing because we fear doing something different. And there are times where I can be drawn into um, to call what is uh, wrong, wrong that everybody else is calling wrong, or to call right what everybody else is calling right. Because I, I fear the crowd. I fear what other people might think if I go the other way. It's tempting. And I know that there will be some people here this morning who really fear going against the norm. And you, you fear it to the extent that you find it impossible to see it another way. The, the norm, the, the values of our culture and what it defends without God. That's become your religion or your creed, or your Bible, or your God, as J.C. Ryle puts it. You struggle with God because he doesn't fit the norm of today. It's tempting to just to want to go with what is normal, but it can blind us to what God actually wants. God is calling his people back because he wants a better norm for them. The norm that Israel has forsaken, but that God wants for them. And that norm is knowing God. That's what he saved them for. That's the other half of the verse. They don't acknowledge God. They don't know the Lord. That's the norm that God wants for his people. 
It's what he's calling them back to. Forget the norm of this world. Forget worrying about what everybody else believes and what they worship. When you come and know the Lord, that's what I want for you. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let knowing the Lord be the thing that determines how you live your life. Let that be the central thing that guides you rather than the fear of what other people think. That's the joy of being the Lord's people, isn't it? That we get to know God. So don't settle for the trap of just saying everything's fine. Don't fall into the trap of just wanting to go with what's normal. And thirdly, the third trap is this. We fall into the trap of wanting to fix things ourselves. It might be that we see the problem and we think that we have the tools at our disposal to fix the fundamental issues. But the issue here is that it's not just that the Israelites are wanting to do a bit of dodgy DIY to kind of bodge it and move on. We read here that the tools that they think they can use are the religious practices that God has given them. We see this in verse 6, that they go with their flocks and herds ready to sacrifice to seek the Lord. But the trouble is is that they believe that they can uh, live for every other idol under the sun and that their guilty conscience will be silenced just by doing religious stuff. They think those tools are going to counteract their guilt. But these these practices, these tools, if you want to call them that, they're they're there to make them a a healthy nation that's a house of worship where God lives but they use it to continue their corruption without feeling guilty. Is it any reason then that in verse 7, when it says that they go and they celebrate their new moon uh, feasts, God is going to do the very opposite of what they're hoping to achieve, that he is going to devour their fields. It is an awful thing, isn't it, when we think that we can keep God quiet with heartless worship. It's an awful thing, to think that we can trap God with religion. Derek Kidney in his commentary says, Israel, they must learn that God is not a prisoner of his sacraments. Verse 6 tells us that God cannot be sought on these grounds. They're not going to find him if that's what they're wanting to do. Just as if we are living in ways that don't please God, we can't fool ourselves into thinking that simple religious obedience will cancel it all out. Israel cannot strong-arm God into living in a house dedicated to the worship of other gods. And neither can we. They must learn that God is not a prisoner of his sacraments. But yet in his anger that he's expressing towards them, he wants to help them because if he is ever to live with them, They need him to deal with the root of the issue. And for that to happen, they have to want him. They have to want him, just not his benefits. So where can we ourselves find that we are falling into this trap of just thinking, we'll fix it ourselves. We'll do this, a good quiet time, a bit of prayer, we'll come to church, we'll fix it ourselves. Where actually we don't see in our hearts an actual longing to be near God. Let's not fall into that trap of fixing it ourselves. Now, before we arrive at the final, the fourth and final trap, we are interrupted 
with the sound of trumpets. God declares his judgment on them by raising a battle alarm in verses 8 to 12. And here we find out what's kind of been happening in, in the background. And these events are likely uh, talking about what's, what's uh, described in 2 Kings chapter 16. So this is where the northern kingdom of Israel has joined forces with Syria to attack the southern kingdom. But they are unsuccessful. And so the southern kingdom, Judah, wanting help, calls upon Assyria, the enemy of God's people, the, the looming superpower of the age. They call on Assyria to help. But to do that, they sell themselves to get a lifeline. And so, so uh, Assyria helps Judah, and they make a counterattack. And it's currently, it's pushing up into the northern kingdom. And so Hosea sounds the alarm and says, your destruction is certain. And all that is about to come their way is a result of their own sin. And we see that here in the warning. Uh, with Ephraim, Israel, is, is called oppressed and trampled. This is what's going to happen. But these are the very words that the prophet Amos uses to describe what they've been doing. The rampant injustice that they have been keeping out, keeping going. And then, so, so uh, Judah as well, they have opened the door to their own destruction. They've been greedy. As they mount their counterattack, they are taking land that God has not given them to take. In verse 10, we read these words, they are like those who move the boundary stones. They ignore the, the, the boundaries and barriers that God has set out, which in Deuteronomy, we read, cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. They're not listening to God. They've been greedy. And they are doing it with the help of the enemy of God's people. And so inevitably what's going to happen, even as Judah gets Assyria's help and they push up into the north and, and take over the north, Assyria is going to turn on Judah and Judah is going to be crushed. They're not going to be totally dismantled like Israel, but they, Judah, are going to be defeated. And so the trumpet now in, in verses 8 to 12 rings out that all this is about to happen. But what is this? This is a warning. This is a warning when the consequences of their sin are far off, when they're on their way where they can see them coming from a mile away. And the choice is there to respond. But again, neither Israel nor Judah are ready to face up to their corruption. And so instead, they, they get themselves caught up in the fourth trap, which is to believe that they by themselves can manage the consequences of their sin. So we've had a warning, and now they believe that they can manage the consequences of their sin. Look at verse 13, where we read that both nations become aware of their sickness. They see the signs of rot that are going on deep under the surface. But rather than calling on God, they put themselves at the mercy of others. Let's take this image of the, the house again. They, they are inviting strangers to come and hold up the house that's crumbling around them. They're allowing these strangers to come in and to convince them that all is well. But these people that they've invited in, 
They neither care about the spiritual rot that's going on under the surface, surface and nor can they do anything else to, to actually help them with it. And it is easy for us to do the same. Where the reality of our bad decisions are becoming kind of clear. We can turn to those who tell us what we want to hear. Perhaps those who don't believe what we believe, but who are going to tell us that we've made the right call. Who will defend us. Or they'll try and tell us that maybe we can make a plan to kind of, um, you know, manage the damage control. And even then, alongside other believers, we can be quick to kind of jump to God's grace in Jesus, but without lovingly addressing the underlying sin that's happening. We can apply God's grace without actually telling them to turn to God, to face up to that sin. And we ourselves, when we're in sin, we can be glad to have our conscience soothed, especially if it means that we don't have to face up to the problem. And that's the trap that they've fallen into. They believe that with the help of these others, they're going to be strong, but they continue to be blind to their weaknesses. And so for Israel, this was their undoing. They let the enemy into their house and God uses them to bring the house down. We read it's like a, a plague of the body that rots from the inside or like a beast that comes and tears it to pieces. And actually, uh, if you go back to Deuteronomy, this is what God said he would do. Initially, he's, in Deuteronomy, God is preparing his people, he's establishing his kingdom to be a light to the nations. He's going to bless them and, and, and by blessing them, he's going to make them a blessing to the world. But he does say, if they forsake him, if they turn from him, then he says, I will send a wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of the wild beasts. And this is now coming to fruition. The wild beasts is Assyria. But God as well, in the language here, puts himself in the driving seat as well. It says that he is the one that's going to tear them to pieces. And after countless warnings, it's finally happening. So what hope is there for them? What hope is for them? What hope is there for us who fall into all of these traps at different times? Well, a glimmer of hope emerges. A glimmer of hope emerges as they are called to earnestly seek God. We read in chapter 5, verse 15, Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. All of this, God's discipline, is meant to bring us to humble repentance. But in that repentance, there is hope. Even for the most hopeless of cases, he's talking about a house that is going to be completely brought to the ground. But yet he says restoration is possible. God is going to remain faithful to those who trust him. He's going to remain faithful to his promises to them. And as they look to him, he will rebuild. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because for those few who remain faithful to God, they have had to go through this judgment with the rest of the nation. They've been dealt with corporately. But God is promising to see them through. Now it's that is a challenge, but I think it's true today that when God disciplines a church or a, or a whole denomination or an institution, Christian institution, 
God does not overlook those who love him. And his discipline is to draw people back to healthy foundations. And here in verse 15, we have this first light of hope that there is restoration down the line for God's people. But there is no avoiding it. For this work of restoration to take place in our own lives, what do we have to do? We have to take up the floorboards. We need to bring our sin to God for him to deal with. And this is, as Hosea says, it's a miserable business. But let's not lose sight of what's at stake. Let's not lose sight of the goal here. God wants to live in close relationship with us. So he says, seek me. Earnestly seek me so that you will find me. So friends, this morning, let us seek God. Let us turn our faces to his face as we see it in the Lord Jesus. As he set his sights in love upon us. He is the one who, when our lives were in spiritual ruin, came in and took the guilt, took our guilt with his life. Jesus is the one who is the great carpenter who is able to come and do away with those old foundations to tear them up and to put in the new. He is the spiritual, great spiritual physician who can heal the wounds and sin of our hearts. Jesus is the one who makes us new and who moves in. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Jesus, having restored us, or having having moved in, is restoring us to the glory that we were made for. And he calls us to leave nothing hidden in our hearts so that we might live at peace and in close relationship with God. Friends, if we have humbled ourselves with the very worst of ourselves before Jesus, we can seek his face and know his love. God has made a way. If you're not a believer here this morning, then first let me encourage you to listen to Hosea's warning. These are heavy words because he's wanting us to see that we cannot live life apart from God. That is a way of judgment. But God will not turn you away if you call on him for help. Ask him for his forgiveness. Invite him to be the one to come in and recreate you and to live in you, to know the living God. If you've got questions, speak to me, speak to uh, Steve or those that you've seen at the front. Pray with somebody after the service that you would not go on with the floorboards pinned down. Open it up before God and know the joy and peace that is there as you live your life freely before him and for all of us this morning what's under the floorboards is there sin that you are ignoring are you going on with everyone else are you trying to fix it are you trying to manage the consequences by yourself friends We have 
a rescuer. Seek God's face in the gracious Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood brings us healing. His power works restoration in us. And in his face, we see the love of the Father as we return to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you know our hearts completely, that nothing is hidden to you. And we thank you that you have stepped forward in the Lord Jesus to make known that there's something that needs dealing with in our hearts. And we thank you for your spirit who this morning, no doubt, is pointing out that there is stuff beneath the floorboards that needs dealing with. But Lord, I thank you that we are freed from all of these traps. We don't need to sort it. We don't need to hide it. We can come to you and know grace and forgiveness and power to change. What a saviour. Oh Lord, help us. Help our weak hearts. Help us to be hungry to see your face and to bring all that comes in the way. Lord, together we say this morning, forgive us for our sin. Lord, we thank you that you dwell in us and may we know you. May we know deep and rich fellowship as you live in us. And long to know us more deeply and for us to know you more deeply. Oh Lord, by your spirit, as you call us to return to you this morning, may we have hearts that are just delighted to receive you. And that can know that your face shines over us with love as we are in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we worship you. In his name we pray. Amen.